0: SNAP production. Hello, welcome to the briefing. It is Tuesday, the 27th of April. I'm Tom Tilley, joined today by Annika Smethers. Hey Annika.
1: Hey Tom, and in today's briefing, we follow America into war. What about the war
2: on carbon? I think we can't underestimate how significant a 50% cut by 2030 is going to be. This is a really dramatic shift in policy.
0: Yes, America's 2030 carbon reduction target is now almost double ours. So should we match them? That is today's briefing. First here is the big news of the day.
1: Residents in Western Australia have come out of lockdown, but will have to keep wearing masks in public.
0: The lockdown will end as planned. Interim restrictions will come into force from midnight tonight, allowing us to take a stepped-down approach after the three-day lockdown. That's the WA Premier, Mark McGowan, announcing the end of the lockdown yesterday. Uh, Those interim restrictions include limits on gatherings and enforced masks will still be in place until Saturday.
1: The decision came after no new community COVID cases were announced yesterday or Sunday, from almost 30,000 tests since the lockdown began on Friday.
0: And the Western Australian branch of the Australian Medical Association is calling for a new approach to quarantining travellers, saying the hotel system isn't working.
1: We absolutely cannot say that this has been a success in any regard. It's been a human rights catastrophe. WAAMA branch president Andrew Miller speaking to the ABC there. Other state leaders are continuing to back the hotel quarantine system, saying it's the best Australia has. And Victoria is even asking the federal government to approve a plan to bring an extra 120 foreign students and business travellers into Victoria each week in a desperate effort to boost the state's economy.
0: Yeah, I noticed on the front page of the Australian Financial Review today, you've got a, uh, a paraphrased quote from Gladys Berejiklian saying that WA needs to toughen up on, on, on quarantine. <laughs>
1: Look, they haven't had too much uh, experience, I guess, uh, compared to some of the eastern states in handling that. They've obviously been a little bit spooked by this uh, latest lockdown and also the cases, but they've managed to get on top of it, which is a really good thing. I would say that means hotel quarantine is working.
0: Three Aussie cricketers are already making their way home from the Indian Premier League, while 16 other Aussie cricketers and coaches remain in the COVID-ravaged country.
1: That includes Steve Smith, Dave Warner and Ricky Ponting in a coaching role.
0: They're big names still there. They're obviously facing a pretty difficult situation. Um, The Australian Cricketers Association and Cricket Australia are considering hiring a plane to bring them all home when the tournament ends in May. But it will be interesting to see, Annika, if more of them start coming home sooner than that.
1: Yeah, it's a pretty terrible situation over there. Australia's High Commissioner to India, who's Barry O'Farrell, he says there's about 8,000 more Australians trying to get home. The consular team here are keeping in touch with people who feel particularly vulnerable. But to date, none of those people we've been in touch with have a severely contracted COVID
2: requiring hospital treatment. But we don't know whether that will last in the future.
0: Yeah, India has seen a fifth straight day of record-breaking new case numbers Uh, And authorities in the capital of Delhi believe one person is dying of COVID every four minutes.
1: The National Security Committee will meet today to consider what aid can be sent and whether to put further restrictions on travel to and from India.
2: India is literally gasping for oxygen. We are in a position to be able to supply non-invasive ventilators. We're in a strong position on that front.
0: Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if they stop travel from India altogether, what that means for the cricketers, because... I imagine they'll make an exception for them, but then you've got those 8,000 other Aussies who, who might be stuck there.
1: A video has emerged of the Prime Minister speaking at a Pentecostal church conference where he warned leaders of the evil one on social media. Social media has its virtues and its values and enables us to connect with people in ways we've never had before. But those weapons can also be used by the evil one.
0: Yeah, that's the Prime Minister there. Speaking at the Australian Christian Churches conference on the Gold Coast last week, the video was uploaded to YouTube yesterday by a group called Rationalist Australia. I can't save the world. We both believe in someone who can. And that's why
1: I've come here for your help tonight. Because what you do and what you bring to the life of faith of our country is what it needs.
0: So the Prime Minister has been pretty open about his membership of the Pentecostal group Horizon in southern Sydney. And about his beliefs, um, I think a lot of people remember that photo of him holding up his hands uh, before the 2019 election. And it was interesting, you know, as someone who's had experience in this, this Pentecostal world, to hear him speaking in this way, using the, the sort of the language and the terms that are very common in this environment. But I imagine, Anika, it's a bit unusual for people who, who haven't heard him speak that way before.
1: Yeah, there's been a lot of, I guess, criticism levelled at him because he practices a different form of Christianity to, you know, uh, your local Catholic or Anglican church that perhaps Australians are more familiar with. I've looked at it a lot in my book. He didn't start off Pentecostal too. He did actually, you know, go to a more common church within, within Australia when he was a bit younger. So it is something he went to later in life. And I don't know, how does it sit with you? It sits quite uncomfortably with me that we do almost mock him for his religion. I don't know if we would do that if he was a different religion.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be seen to be mocking him for his religion. I just thought it was interesting to hear him sort of dropping straight into that language, which is very different from the language he normally mm-hmm. uses. There's nothing wrong with that in particular. Probably the only part that sort of got my attention a little bit was where he, he bragged about praying for people in evacuation centres without their permission. I've been
1: in evacuation centres where people thought I was just giving someone a hug and I was praying and putting my hands on people in various places, laying hands on them and
0: praying. That's a little bit weird with me, that he was almost deceptively laying his hands on people and praying for them without their knowledge.
1: I guess if it's going to bring good luck, <laughs> I wouldn't be too disappointed. Look, it is an interesting thing, though, how we speak about uh, Scott Morrison's religion. I don't know how to feel about it. This is all really new to me, not you. You have a bit mm. more in, sort of, of a background with the Pentecostal church. And as you say, those uh, language around it and the laying of the hands is not the sort of religion I grew up in, but um, interesting that he feels so comfortable uh, being himself in that sort of environment.
0: China has censored director Chloe Zhao's Oscar speech because she'd previously been critical of the country.
1: Zhao was yesterday named the first Chinese woman and woman of colour to win the award for best director for her movie Nomadland.
0: Chinese state-run media outlets made little mention of the win and Chinese social media platforms raced to delete articles and posts about the ceremony and Miss Yao, according to US media.
1: It's believed the reaction might be due to comments she made in the past. In 2013, she recounted growing up in China and described it as, quote, a place where there are lies everywhere.
0: Yeah, it was a great movie, though, no- Land. Francis McDormand starred in it and travelled to all these places in America where people are living in their vans out in the desert, um, working for big companies like Amazon, moving around following the work. It was a really unique movie and um, obviously great directing. All right, in just a moment, we're talking about the way Australia should respond to America's increasing ambitions on climate change. So as of Friday, America has stepped up their ambition on climate change in a big way. The United States sets out on the road to cut greenhouse gases in half, in half, by the end of this decade.
1: That's US President Joe Biden striking a very different tone to his predecessor, Donald Trump. At a virtual climate summit of world leaders on Friday, Biden committed America to the goal of reducing carbon emissions by 50%, by
0: 2030. Yep, and the EU was loving it.
2: It is so good to have the US back on our side in the fight against climate change. Together we will win the future.
0: That's Ursula von der Leyen, the President of the European Commission. Uh, The new US goal is almost twice as ambitious as Australia's now, so that put Scott Morrison in a very interesting position when it was his time to speak at Friday's summit. Was he going to match Biden's new ambition? Well, the is no, he wasn't. Australia is on the pathway to net zero. Our goal is to
1: get there as soon as we possibly can. So no commitment about exactly when we'll get to net zero and no update on our 2030 target. Now, that's infuriated a lot of people, including some of our allies, and they claim things like, well, of course we should match America's ambition. We follow them into every war. Why wouldn't we follow them into this war on carbon? So... The question for today's briefing is, should Australia be matching America's climate ambition?
0: Okay, so let's drill down into this, Annika. What are our commitments for 2030 and how do they compare now that other countries are upping their ambitions?
1: Our commitments have been set in stone for a while, and that's to reduce emissions by between 26 and 28% by 2030. Now, compare that to the UK, who have said they'll cut it by 68% by 2030. Now, that's one of the fastest rates of reduction of all developing nations, We've got the EU with a 55% drop and of course that US with half a drop. Other countries that haven't been so great, are Japan and Canada, they get a lot of criticism like us. Both of them started with ambitions like Australia, but have made huge jumps to more than 40% reductions by 2030, meaning we're really out by ourselves.
0: You know a lot about Scott Morrison. You're writing a book about him. You've also been a, a federal politics reporter for many years. So you've covered climate policy, which has been such a vexatious issue, particularly for the Liberal Party. It's unseated a number of prime ministers. What's your insight into Scott Morrison's strategy of not matching these targets?
1: A lot of it's internal pressure. within inside his own party, there's this huge debate. There's people that really want to do something on climate change. They tend to be liberals from major cities. And then, of course, they've got other liberals that don't even believe in climate change Now, that fight has actually brought down prime ministers in the past. We've seen that fight effectively bring down Malcolm Turnbull. And look at Julia Gillard over in Labor when she tried to introduce a carbon tax that essentially brought her down. So it's a really hard issue for them to manage, not just amongst voters, but amongst their own people. Now, the coalition have another problem. They have the National Party in there who represent a lot of seats in regional areas, which are held by blue collar workers whose work depends on this. And If you look at how you win elections in Australia, you basically have to win Queensland. There's 30 seats in Queensland, 12 of them, almost half of them are really, really tight traditionally. A lot of those, especially in central Queensland around Rockhampton and Gladstone and Townsville, they are really strong mining areas. And if you go out too far on these issues, you're not going to win the election. So Scott Morrison has all that in his mind when he's coming to these global events and As much as he wants to look good on a global stage, you're not going to win votes in Paris or in Washington.
0: Yeah, so how many of those seats are there that um, have a lot of blue-collar workers that either work in mining or in industries that are impacted by mining? And how many of them are marginal?
1: It changes every election. So you can only go on the last election. But going into the last election, there was some really key seats where both parties tried to target that they were going to look after these workers should their jobs go because we got rid of mining. And that's the seats of Flynn... Uh, Which is basically Gladstone and Capricornia, which is Rockhampton. Now these were held by margins of like less than two percent, so we're talking hundreds of votes that could change the whole election and who makes up government. The coalition did well in these seats at the last election and actually managed to boost their margin by heaps. But at every election, they come back into play. So Labor is even being really, really careful around those areas this time because they don't want to scare people. Now we all remember Adani at the last election; it was quite a controversial issue those issues really played into that, that fear. And it's not just people that actually work in these mines, Tom. It's anybody sort of who considers themselves a blue-collar worker or working in any sort of industry that they see as being targeted or maybe becoming a bit outdated. So if you look at Northern Tassie, there's a lot of marginal seats around there, a lot of blue-collar workers. So it doesn't necessarily have to be people that work in mines. It's these people that don't want their communities to change.
0: The coal industry is seen as symbolic for a whole range of industrial sectors that people are worried about falling behind if we, if we move too fast. Um, I imagine it's the people in those electorates you're talking about, Annika, that Scott Morrison's trying to impress uh, when he says things like this.
1: We're not going to achieve net zero in the cafes, dinner parties and wine bars of our inner cities. It will be achieved by the pioneering entrepreneurialism and innovation of Australia's industrial workhorses, farmers and scientists.
0: So that was obviously kind of divisive. Is that the logic, that he's he's speaking to that audience in those seats you've been talking about?
1: Yeah, I don't really think he cares about annoying people who sit around in wine bars pontificating on climate change. He knows who his audience is. He knows who he has to convince about this argument. People in the inner cities already have most largely made up their mind on this issue. They believe we should be doing more. It's about bringing people who uh, don't feel that way and feel that they're often lectured to by media elites or politicians or scientists in the cities. It's about talking to them and bringing them with him on this change. And you can tell that Scott Morrison is a bit open to change on this. He is making some progress, but he's not going to do it at a really fast rate.
0: Well, that's a really interesting point because a lot of people get infuriated by comments like that or him bringing coal into parliament. But Recently, he's been saying, you know, we want to achieve net zero, hopefully by 2050. So that's actually quite an ambitious statement for a coalition leader, even if you compare where Malcolm Turnbull got the party to.
1: It is. And Malcolm Turnbull, before entering politics and even before becoming prime minister, was far more outspoken than when he was in the job because... You do get hamstrung by the people around you. Now, Scott Morrison isn't silly enough to make mistakes of strongly committing uh, and going out there and sort of telling his party and people in these communities what he wants to do. He wants to bring them with him. So his language is still open. We want to achieve, it's an aim. He's not saying that's set in stone. I think they do want to get there. I just think they don't want to say they do.
0: Mm, Very interesting dynamics. Great to get your insights on on the way the politics work, because for a lot of people, yeah, they find Scott Morrison infuriating, but to know that actually he's moved the policy further along than Malcolm Turnbull was able to is kind of a paradox. So, yeah, interesting stuff there. Um, Let's find out more about this US-Australia relationship and how that could change our climate policy. Dr Emma Shortus has been watching this closely. She's studied the US-Australia relationship for years. She's about to publish a book on it. She even did a PhD at Yale. Um, Emma, how dramatic is this shift on climate from America?
2: (laughs) The Biden administration has made dramatic changes. I think we can't underestimate how significant a 50% cut by 2030 is going to be. This is a really dramatic shift in policy.
1: Do we know yet what impact this is having in terms of said any effect on Joe Biden's popularity? And, you know, where is that most felt?
2: Look, that's a really good question. The first thing I'd say is that Joe Biden came into office promising really radical climate policies. That was part of his election pitch. And to be honest, I think most American attention has been focused elsewhere on things like the vaccine rollout. And because of the success of that, Biden is maintaining a a pretty high approval rating. He's been reacting, I guess, to an emergency. And so this is a big shift for him. And it's very true that while he's announced these radical climate policies, they haven't been legislated yet. They haven't gotten through Congress. And Biden has a very slim majority in the Senate. So it's certainly not assured that these radical climate policies will actually be enacted yet.
0: Are there parts of America like Cleveland, for example, or yeah. Pennsylvania or, or other parts of the country, which could be really hating this kind of rhetoric, people that feel like they're going to lose their livelihoods?
2: I guess the places that I would be watching are not so much kind of the traditional Republican strongholds in that sense, but maybe somewhere like, you know, West Virginia, which has a Democratic senator but is also a historic coal mining area. You know, senators from places like that, I think, are are reluctant not so much to act on climate change, but to act quickly and radically.
1: We hear a lot about how other countries might see Australia and our attempts to do anything about climate change How do you think we're actually viewed by right now the Biden administration but also some of our other neighbours and friends in the UK and New Zealand about our record and ambitions toward climate change?
2: Australia was going to have to shift really quickly, particularly away from coal. So given that all of our major allies and trading partners have all made really significant commitments to emissions reductions, Australia and the Australian government, I think, really stand out on the world stage and particularly in the developing world for not matching those kind of commitments. So if we don't step up
1: and we don't do much to change our current ambitions and our current goals to reduce emissions... What do we risk? What could go wrong with those relationships that we've fostered over years?
2: The United States has said that it's going to continue to put significant pressure on countries that are lagging when it comes to action on climate change. We can't also underestimate the impact of policy developments in places like the European Union, which is going to institute a carbon border adjustment mechanism, which has a potential to, to really reshape trading relationships for Australia as well.
0: Yeah, let's talk more about those carbon border adjustment schemes. You said the EU is developing one. Uh, Mm -hmm. We know the Biden administration is is thinking about it. Another way of saying it is climate tariffs, basically taxing our exports. So if we're selling coal into these other countries, um, there'll be a tax on top of it. How much impact do you think this will have? Because a a lot of this discussion seems to be quite in the soft diplomacy sort of bracket. Mm -hmm. You know, pressure pushing your friends to do more, but this if it came in, could really mean the rubber hits the road, couldn't it?
2: I think it could mean really significant change, not just for trading relationships, but for the global economy. Because what these policies are designed to do is internally, I guess, to stop companies and industries from going elsewhere to seek out places where they can continue to use the kind of environmentally damaging um, practices that they have. So this is designed to stop that. And so when Australia is reliant on things like you know, coal exports, for example, that can radically reshape our trading relationships. And, and it has to be said, I think, that businesses in Australia are already reacting to that. They're already anticipating that change. And that's why they're asking the federal government to act and to support them through that change.
0: Emma, some people following this issue would be wondering, well, if, if India and China didn't step up with stronger ambitions last week, why should we?
2: Look, that's been a question that has, has, I think, plagued Australian climate policy and global climate policy for decades now and... China and India, which are significant global emitters, absolutely need to step up their climate ambitions. And look, I wouldn't be surprised if both of those countries do do that in the lead up to Glasgow. So that's true, that those countries need to step up that if we want to meet the commitments of the Paris Climate Accords. But it's also true that developing nations need to shoulder a significant amount of the burden and shift their economies away from fossil fuels if we want to address catastrophic global climate change. That is the reality that we are facing.
0: Emma Shortis from RMIT there, and she hosts her own podcast called Belly Getting By. And what do you think if, if Scott Morrison does sort of go the direction he's indicated he will, which is a commitment to net zero by 2050, you know, potentially if he, he makes that commitment before the big Glasgow summit in November, do you think that will be enough to sort of quieten his detractors?
1: Uh, no. <laughs> Look, I think they're always going to say he hasn't done enough. But what does he do on the flip side? If he goes too hard, he only has a one seat majority and that would be a suicide mission. So it's a really difficult uh, thing for him to navigate. Look, he does have some things working in his favour. George Christensen, Craig Kelly, two people that are outspoken on climate change. They don't think it's real, really. They're leaving politics at their next election. So he might feel a little bit safer if someone's pre-selected in that seat who actually is a bit open to reducing carbon emissions.
0: All right, interesting dynamics there. Um, Keep watching this space. We'll be across all the major developments for you. Tomorrow on The Briefing, the backstory of the massive Super League implosion. Listener.